Welcome back to the OBG Med Student Podcast. This is the podcast that is designed for medical students that are on the OB-GYN clerkship rotation. I am Dr. Tanya Wright, and I am the clerkship director here at the Hershey Medical Center, Penn State College of Medicine. Today, we are going to interview our guest and cover the topic of ectopic pregnancy. This is APCO educational topic number 15, and if you wanted to follow along with the student guide, you can find this at www.apco.org backslash students. All right, everybody, today we are going to be chatting with Dr. Jacqueline Meralt. Dr. Meralt is an OB-GYN here at the Hershey Medical Center, and she'll be helping us cover the case of ectopic pregnancy and to work through some questions. Welcome, Dr. Meralt. Hi, Dr. Wright. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to start by reading the case. Um, For those of you guys listening, we'll actually read a modified version of the case that's located on the APCO website. This is a 36-year-old G1P0010 that came to your office with light vaginal bleeding, which she feels is not actually her period. She also does have some mild right lower quadrant pain, which she rates as a 2 out of 10. The pain is intermittent and crampy and not associated with urination no nausea, no vomiting, and her last bowel movement was yesterday and was normal consistency and normal color. Her past medical history is not notable for anything really except that she's had a history of PID, which resolved with antibiotics, and she's also had a left ectopic pregnancy, which required surgical removal of her left tube. Otherwise, her review system was unremarkable, and she has no other relevant past medical history. Her physical exam today does show an anxious appearing female with a temperature of 99.2, blood pressure of 105 over 62, and a pulse of 65. Examination of her abdomen shows normal bowel sounds. There are no masses, organomegaly. Uh, It's not distended. There's no rebound tenderness. She has mild discomfort in the right lower quadrant. Pelvic exam reveals adnexal tenderness on the right without any adnexal masses. The uterus is normal size and there is discomfort on cervical motion tenderness. The rectal exam is negative with heme, negative stool. All right, so let's ask the first question. So, Dr. Moral, is there anything else from this clinical case that you need to know before working through this? Um, I think just to start, you had gone through the patient's uh, medical history and physical exam findings. I think one of the first things I like to know when meeting with a patient um, is first kind of that opening statement for me is what is their last menstrual period and if they're using or have been using a reliable form of contraception. Um, So that just allows me to know kind of what we're starting with in terms of their menstrual history and then plus or minus is there a possibility of pregnancy whether or not they're using any form of contraception either. Awesome. So we know from this clinical case that the last menstrual period was approximately seven weeks ago. And in fact, our patient is not using any form of reliable contraception. So knowing these things, then what would be your differential diagnosis for this patient? Um, With regards to a differential diagnosis, I think it's important to think of things from both an obstetrical, a GYN perspective, and also the idea that there are other organs in the pelvis that could be causing this patient's symptoms as well. So you have to think from an obstetrical perspective in a reproductive-aged female for the possibility of a normal pregnancy itself, a possible ectopic pregnancy, versus is there possibility of a either miscarriage, whether it be incomplete, complete, or the possibility of an early missed AB. Um, from a GYM perspective, is their symptom secondary to an ovarian cyst, a possible ovarian torsion, 
is this an infectious process? Um, as this patient's history alluded to, she did have a prior history of PID, so is this again a recurrence? Um, versus this is more of a chronic condition such as endometriosis, or is it related to something outside of the OBGYN spectrum such as appendicitis, um, bowel disease, and or bladder issues? Thank you, Dr. Moral. So what aspects of this patient's history and physical exam then might lead you to be suspicious of an ectopic pregnancy with respect to both symptoms as well as other physical findings. So when we reflect back on this patient's case, um, when we think about the presentation of what brought her in, she was unsure of an LMP. Um, she had light spotting, but stated it wasn't normally like her period. So she would, in our mind, qualify for amenorrhea, which does occur in about 75 to 95% of cases. She did have abdominal pain, which isn't always present, but upwards of 95 to 100%. And then she didn't necessarily have a normal menstrual period, but she did have vaginal spotting, which occurs in about 65 to 85% of cases. When we take her history and put that together with her physical exam findings, we had noted abdominal tenderness, which again occurs in up to 80 to 90% of cases. She did have right adnexal tenderness, but did not have an adnexal mass, which is present in 30 to 50% of cases. And we did note that she had a normal uterine size on bimanual exam, which is the case in approximately 70% of cases. Excellent. So it's really important to reiterate here that for any sexually active woman who is reproductive age, who is presenting with pain, irregular bleeding, and or amenorrhea, you should absolutely consider an ectopic pregnancy as a possibility, um, recognizing that pain is common, but it's not always present in patients with ectopic pregnancies. So then what are risk factors for ectopic pregnancy? And of those risk factors, which ones did our patients have? So in general, just the risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy include a prior ectopic pregnancy, a history of pelvic inflammatory disease, um, gonorrhea and chlamydial infection specifically, a history of any previous GYN or abdominal surgery, which could put you at risk for pelvic adhesions, a prior sterilization procedure, which in this case may result in a failure, putting you at risk of an ectopic pregnancy, a history of endometriosis, a congenital uterine malformation, if you had assisted reproductive technology in terms of being able to help you become pregnant, and older age. For our patient specifically, she has a prior history of an ectopic pregnancy as well as a prior history of pelvic inflammatory disease. It is important to note that one half of patients, 50% of them, do not have any risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy. So although that does allow you to increase your clinical suspicion, it shouldn't necessarily rule out someone who does not have risk factors. Yeah, having risk factors should definitely heighten your suspicion um, so that you can have an earlier intervention because we do know that um, ectopic pregnancy is the leading cause of pregnancy-related death in the first trimester. So early intervention is key here. Dr. Moralt, where do ectopic pregnancies happen? So when we think about an ectopic pregnancy, essentially you have to think about the idea of a pregnancy occurring anywhere that it's not supposed to. So it's not in the uterus, so where else can it occur? It can occur in the fallopian tube, which is the most common, so that'll be approximately 90% of cases. It can occur in the abdomen, the cervix, the ovary, and in a C-section scar. But so if we were to focus our attention on what is the most common site of an ectopic pregnancy, which would be the fallopian tube, I think it would be important for us to review the anatomy of the fallopian tube. 
So when we think about the fallopian tube in and of itself, if we think about the most distal portion of the fallopian tube, that would be the infundibulum. So that portion of the fallopian tube contains the fimbria. These are finger-like projections that extend towards the ovary and after ovulation, which function to trap the ovum. The next portion of the fallopian tube is the ampulla, which is the widest segment near the distal end, and it does have increased mucosal folds, and it is the most common site of fertilization, as well as the most common site where we would expect an ectopic pregnancy to occur. The next portion of the fallopian tube is the isthmus, which is the narrow segment of the fallopian tube as it's coming in to the uterine wall. And then the next portion is the interstitium, which is actually the portion of the fallopian tube that has penetrated into the uterus itself. So based on this, Dr. Moralt, it seems like so all of these segments of the fallopian tube that you describe are at risk for an ectopic pregnancy, but some portions are at higher risk than others? Yes, that is true. So when we think about kind of the fallopian tube in and of itself and where fertilization most likely takes place, that is in the ampullary portion of the fallopian tube. And so that is why when we think about the fallopian tube and where an ectopic pregnancy is most likely to occur, in the ampullary portion, upwards of 80% is where ectopic pregnancies are located with regards to the anatomical distribution along that fallopian tube. When we think about the isthmic portion, that would be approximately 12% out near the distal portion, the infundibulum near the fimbria would be approximately 5%, and with a corneal and or an interstitial ectopic pregnancy, that's approximately 2%. Awesome. But why does it occur? What, what actually causes the ectopic pregnancy? When we think about what causes an ectopic pregnancy, we have to expect that after fertilization takes place, there's an expected time course for it to make its way down to the uterus. So if there's any sort of delay in that process versus if there's any sort of prevention of that fertilized egg to be able to make its way down to the uterus, it will prematurely implant within the fallopian tube, resulting in ectopic pregnancy. Additionally, there may be factors inherent to the fertilized egg that may result in its premature implantation as well that will not allow its people to make it down to the uterus and as such, again, result in an ectopic pregnancy. So going back to our case, what we are suspicious of an ectopic pregnancy, we have our very broad differential diagnosis that we discussed earlier. What initial tests would you order for this patient to assist you in narrowing down your differential diagnosis? So initially in the office, you can order a urine pregnancy test, and if that does come back positive, you would then want to move forward with obtaining a quantitative beta-HCG, and depending on what that level is, additionally getting a pelvic ultrasound to be able to evaluate for whether or not there is an intrauterine pregnancy or concern for an ectopic pregnancy. Okay, so that's great, Dr. Morales. So I wanted to work through a couple of different possible scenarios that follows. That way we can really try to get a sense of how we would manage these depending on what that beta-HCG result is. So, for example, this patient has a quantitative beta-HCG lab drawn, and it comes back at less than 1,500. What do we do next? So I think the most important things in these cases is to always consider the patient that you have in front of you. So whether or not they're stable is what's going to allow you to be able to have the ability to proceed with different lab work and from there make your clinical assessment of how you would like to proceed. 
So if this patient is stable and their HCG level comes back less than 1500, we at this point would not necessarily expect to see something inside of the uterus. There is something we refer to as the discriminatory zone, which is where the level usually needs to be at least a minimum of 1500 to be able to see an intrauterine pregnancy when utilizing a transvaginal ultrasound. So at this point, if the patient is stable and her level is less than 1500, I would recommend that she get a repeat HCG level in approximately 48 hours. And from there, depending on her stability, either repeat imaging and or discuss further management. So say you have a repeat HCG in 48 hours, as is recommended by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, what would we expect for a normal pregnancy? So when we have a patient, when we think about what their initial HCG value is, we have an expected increase that we would like to see over a 48-hour time course. So when the initial HCG is less than 1,500, we would expect it to rise a minimum of 49%. When the HCG level is between 1,500 to 3,000, we would expect it to rise a minimum of 40%. And when the initial HCG level is greater than 3,000, we would expect it to rise a minimum of 33%. So Dr. Meralt, anything outside of these minimum changes would make you suspicious then of an ectopic pregnancy? When we do not have the minimum rise for an HCG level over that 48-hour time course, that would absolutely heighten my suspicion for an abnormal pregnancy. Got it. Okay, so for a patient who had an initial HCG that was less than 1,500, she had a transvaginal ultrasound that unfortunately was non-revealing because it is in fact below that discriminatory zone. We did make the plan to repeat the HCG 48 hours later, and we had a less than expected um, rise in that HCG. So at that point, the decision was made to repeat the transvaginal ultrasound and on imaging this time, we were able to see a adnexal mass that made us suspicious of an ectopic pregnancy. All right, so what considerations then should we make in discussing treatment for this patient that has a diagnosed ectopic pregnancy on ultrasound? So now that we have a patient with an abnormally rising HCG level and ultrasound findings that are concerning for an ectopic pregnancy, you then have to, again, think about the patient as a whole and from there counsel them regarding their options. So when you think about options for ectopic pregnancy, there is the option given to the patient of possibly proceeding with expectant management. There is the possibility of medical management as well as surgical management. So let's talk briefly about medical management. So who are candidates for medical management? Medical management for an ectopic pregnancy is with methotrexate. Methotrexate is a folic acid antagonist which competitively inhibits the binding of dihydrofolic acid to the enzyme dihydrofolate reductase which inhibits rapidly dividing cells. With regards to methotrexate therapy, the patient first and foremost needs to be stable. And then there are two categories of contraindications. For patients that fall into the absolute contraindication category, they also would not be a candidate for methotrexate. Those contraindications include an intrauterine pregnancy, evidence of immunodeficiency, moderate to severe anemia, leukopenia, or thrombocytopenia, a sensitivity to methotrexate, active pulmonary disease and or peptic ulcer disease, clinically important hepatic dysfunction, and or renal dysfunction, 
breastfeeding, a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, if the patient is unstable, and if they are unable to participate in follow-up as methotrexate therapy requires you to have close follow-up with regards to um, clinical symptomatology following and lab values. With regards to relative contraindications, these patients are able to receive methotrexate therapy, but it may not necessarily be as successful. So that would be evidence of an embryo with cardiac activity, which is detected by transvaginal ultrasound, a high initial HCG concentration, which usually people quote at a level of greater than 5,000, an ectopic pregnancy greater than four centimeters in size, as again noted on transvaginal ultrasound, and if the patient has a refusal to accept a blood transfusion. Thank you, Dr. Murat. Could you also describe a little bit of the surgical treatment options then for patients that are that have absolute or relative contraindications or signs of um, hemodynamic instability? So for patients who are not candidates for methotrexate, if we were to proceed with surgical management, that would be with an operative laparoscopy with plans to proceed either with a salpingectomy or a salpingostomy. A salpingectomy is a removal of the entire portion of the fallopian tube versus a salpingostomy is a removal of the portion of the fallopian tube that is affected by the ectopic pregnancy. The preferred method of surgical management is a salpingectomy. For this patient who's had her tube removed in a previous, with a previous ectopic pregnancy, there could be some consideration for salpingostomy. I think there could be consideration for salpingostomy, and I think it would have to be a discussion with the patient that given that she's had a prior ectopic pregnancy and a history of PID, she could be a candidate for salpingostomy with the understanding that given her history, she would again be at an increased risk of an ectopic pregnancy following that procedure. But if that were something she would be interested in, she technically is a candidate for it. That makes perfect sense to me, Dr. Morales. And then finally, you did mention that expectant management is an option. Who would be a candidate for expectant management for the management of an ectopic pregnancy? So usually expectant management, if someone has an HCG level less than 200, approximately 88% of those patients will have a resolution of their ectopic pregnancy. The patients who are candidates for expectant management are those who are stable and again have to have the understanding that they are at a continued risk of a ruptured ectopic pregnancy throughout that process. Additionally, as with medical management, these patients have to be compliant in understanding that they have to continue with beta-HCG levels so that we are able to ensure that they are decreasing appropriately. Awesome. Well, Dr. Moral, thank you so very much for this awesome and comprehensive review on a very challenging topic. We look forward to talking with you again in the future on more topics. Thank you. Thank you.